Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity. If you're viewing online, we'll list a link in the uh, chat section of the um, Zoom link. And then if you're viewing after the fact, you will find the um, survey link in the description section of the video. And this will be how you um, get your certificate to claim your credit um, for your DEA license. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Alex Schnibben. Dr. Schnibben attained her Doctor of Pharmacy from the South Carolina College of Pharmacy at the University of South Carolina in 2011 and completed her postgraduate year one community pharmacy practice residency at the Virginia Commonwealth University in 2012. After her residency, she became a pharmacy manager with Walgreens and served as market lead for wellness programs. In 2014, Dr. Schnibben took a position at Fort Stewart in Hinesville, Georgia, as a clinical pharmacist specializing in disease state management, polypharmacy, and tobacco cessation. Dr. Schnibben transitioned in 2016 to St. Joseph's Candler Health System Center for Medication Management in Savannah, Georgia, as a clinical pharmacy specialist in ambulatory care. With St. Joseph's Candler Health System, Dr. Schnibben worked in the anticoagulation clinic and was embedded in primary care clinics to provide direct patient care. She established a co-visit model with primary care physicians and nurse practitioners to perform annual wellness visits and disease state management. In 2019, she transitioned to Northeast Georgia Physicians Group as an ambulatory care pharmacist working to establish ambulatory pharmacy services. She has since been promoted to Director Clinical Quality and Ambulatory Pharmacy Services. In her current role, she focuses on population health, medication access, medication and immunization safety and education, and direct patient services provided by pharmacists. She is a member of the American Pharmacists Association, American Society of Health System Pharmacists, Georgia Society of Health System Pharmacists, and Association for the Treatment of Tobacco Use and Dependence. Dr. Schnibben is a board certified in ambulatory care pharmacy and a tobacco treatment specialist. She is an adjunct clinical assistant professor at the University of Georgia College of Pharmacy, and she was awarded the Georgia Medical Society Healthcare Hero Award for Tobacco Cessation Education in 2016, and Georgia Society of Health System Pharmacists Pharmacoeconomics Research Award in 2019. Join me in welcoming Dr. Schnibben. Well, thank you all for having me. Um, this is a topic that, you know, is coming more and more into light in the news. I think before COVID, it was definitely something that was in the forefront of our mind, along with the vaping lung disorders we were starting to see. But unfortunately, COVID kind of overwhelmed us and some things in our population health initiatives focusing on anything substance abuse related, whether it be opioids, street drugs, or even um, nicotine related, kind of fell to the wayside as we were trying to survive and take care of a global pandemic. So now that we have shifted out to that, a lot of focus is moving back into the substance abuse and mental health um, arena um, and allowing people to learn more about that. Um, so as we continue our journey into DEA MAP, this is another part of the series, and I just welcome you on this journey with me. We're really going to focus today on the CDC um, November 22 guidelines talking about safe prescribing of opioids, um, and this is just to supplement all the other things that have been done 
and a perspective from a pharmacist as well. So our objectives today are we are going to discuss the growing opioid epidemic and related statistics. We're going to review federal and Georgia state laws and NGHS policies regarding prescribing controlled substances, review how to calculate morphine milliequivalent per day, summarize the new 2022 CDC guidelines for prescribing opioids for chronic pain, discuss non-pharmacological, non-opioid, and opioid pharmacological therapy options, and discuss office visit workflow for treatment of chronic pain with opioids. So when we look at the overall epidemic statistics, we know that we're continuing to see more and more overdoses, and that's when it comes into play that we're having these conversations about anybody that has a DEA licensure and making sure that they receive educations about the safe prescribing, but also how to treat the patients who are identified with a disorder, and also making sure we have everything in our toolkit and the resources in our community and knowing how to access those for our patients. We know that 70,000 people die um, died from a drug overdose in 2019, and we know that that has just continued to rise since the last statistics were published. We're starting to see more and more of that more prevalent, and that's due to a lot of these illicit drugs in our area being cut with fentanyl, and people don't know that. We know that fentanyl can be very legal. Um, 1.6 million people um, misuse a prescription pain relievers for the first time in 2019. So it's just important for us to know that as we're working through things, this is where we have really a need to counsel our patients, spending that time to go over the risk versus the benefits of using um, opioid medications in their treatment, even if it's just for a simple post-procedural, we're just trying to do pain management, and what that could mean if they misuse the medication or if their pain is not controlled, and setting those real expectations with patients about what is true pain management. If you're a chronic pain person, and we'll discuss the definition of chronic pain, that we're never going to end at zero. We're, our pain level is never going to be zero if you have a patient who has chronic pain. So the question for them is, what is an acceptable pain score that you can um, proceed with your regular quality of life? And then that's the goal that you're shooting for because it's never realistic to be to zero. So let's look at the federal and state law around controlled substance prescribing, really focusing in on opioids. So we know that when a prescriber in the state of Georgia, and it's also a federal law, prescribes a controlled substance or a benzodiazepine. So let's make sure we understand that. Controlled substance and benzodiazepine. So I get a lot of questions about this. Well, what is the definition of a controlled substance? So when we dig into the Georgia law and we look at our Pharmacy Practice Act, it defines us as an opioid. So anything that's classified in an opioid, so we're thinking about methadones, morphine, oxycodone, and it specifically calls out benzodiazepines. It is good practice to check on other things that are controlled substances, such as things like zolopidem for sleep, things such as methylphenidate, when we think about um, treating ADHD, because those are medications that can be misused as well. But we are holding ourselves accountable in the law to definitely check our opioids and our benzodiazepines. So we need to review that PDMP with each first prescription. What does that mean? If it's the first time you have ever prescribed that medication to that patient, you as the provider, you need to check the PDMP, regardless of whatever your peers have done. You need to check it by the definition of the law. The next thing is you, as the person prescribing it, if they come to you again in 90 days, you as the prescriber will need to check the PDMP. So it's best practice just to check it every time so you're not having to remember, did I check it? And that way you stay up to date with the law.
The great thing about Epic is it's all built in there for you. And now in your refill protocol areas, you're actually able to go into it right into that section. You no longer have to jump out and go somewhere else and open an encounter to get to it. It's right there in your normal workflow. Also, if you're ever in the snapshot, you can see in the snapshot the last time you checked the PDMP. It'll tell you the last date and time it was checked and who checked it. Now, this rule does not apply if it's less than a three-day supply or no more than 26 pills. So if it's less than a three-day supply, but you're given more than 26 pills, you do have to check it if it's less than three days, but you're given 27 pills. So it's really important to know that. If the patient is being receiving these medications in the hospital or a care facility, such as a long-term care facility or rehab center, um, if the patient has outpatient surgery and you're giving less than 40 pills, the patient is terminally ill or underneath outpatient hospice program, or the patient is receiving cancer treatment. So what is exactly recorded when we're in the PDMP? So when we're in the PDMP, there's lots of points that you're going to see in there. You're going to obviously see the patient's name. And this is very critical that if Epic is not able to pull up a PDMP, and I think you might have run into this a few times with your patient, that means they gave the pharmacy a different name. So in Epic, we align what a patient's name is based off their documentation on their driver's license. But at a pharmacy, they can give a nickname, they can give whatever name they go by. They do not have to give the name on their driver's license because when they adjudicate a claim out to their prescription company or their PDM or their pharmacy benefits manager, they're just looking for date of birth and the ID number matchup, not that the name is correct. Um, so they could give a different name there. So we may not be able to check it. So if you ever cannot find a PDMP, the best thing to do is to call the pharmacy, figure out how the name is in there and check the PDMP the manual way. So within the PDMP, you'll see the patient's name. You'll be able to see all the doctors that have prescribed the medication, the quantity that they got. Um, did they pay cash for it? Did they use insurance? Um, the number of prescribers, if they've gone to multiple pharmacies, if they've crossed state lines. The good thing about Georgia is it will pull multiple states in as long as the states have agreed. I think the only state that has not agreed that are bordering states for us, I believe, is Florida, but hopefully that's coming soon. Now, when we're looking at Epic, there used to be that you had to do like a dot PDMP to say that you checked it the date and the time. Now, that's done for you when you automatically check the PDMP. Like I said, it shows up in the um, snapshot for you and it is recorded and we're able to run a report on it. So you no longer have to do the, pot, the dot .pdmp phrase, but it's very important that if you're reviewing it and you ran it, if you do see any behavior that is concerning that you document it in the note, you have a conversation with the patient about offering them the services to get them help. So when we look a little bit more into the Georgia law to kind of see, well, what is required when prescribing these medications? We know that morphine milliequivalents per day is that defining factor. So if it's less than 30 is the uh, cut point, and then if it's greater than equal to 30 morphine milliequivalents per day, that's how we get what are we going to do with the patient. So the good thing is... A couple of months ago, we launched an opioid dashboard. So if you've never been on it, it's actually there and present for you. We've got on the ambulatory side, we have a manager's dashboard and a provider's dashboard. And then if you work in the ER, the ER has their own dashboard. But for the ambulatory side, it's recording the things that were held accountable for our Georgia law. Do they have a controlled substance agreement? How often are they seeing you? Um, have they had their random drug screening? And did you check the PDMP? So it's all in there for those patients, and you're able to see your scores and how well you're doing, but you're also able to run the report and see who you are missing. And that's one thing that's really good about it is before you had to do so much of 
doing it all by hand, where you can go to your dashboard, find the patient, figure out what you're missing. We're also working to develop a dot phrase that'll pull that information for you directly into a note. That way, if you wanted to put the date the agreement was signed, when they were last see you and all that stuff, it'd be very much done there for you. You won't have to pop over to the dashboard. So we're working on making that a little bit easier to have Epic pull those data points for you. So everybody is required to have that controlled substance agreement. The random drug screening every three months, which is defined as four times per year for greater than an equal to 30 morphine milliequivalents per day, and then less than 30, it's every 12 months. Get a lot of questions about what, what does that mean? It means you guys have that conversation with the patient when they sign the controlled substance agreement. In that agreement, it says that we will do random drug screenings. Um, not every insurance pays for that, so that's a conversation the patient needs to be aware that there might be a charge for it, but the majority of them do pay for it. The other thing is um, because it's random, we don't want to schedule and let them know because if it's a patient that's doing any um, behavior that could be concerning, they can come prepared to cheat the drug test. So it's very important that we are aware of it's a surprise thing and the patient just knows it can happen at any point. Um, also, however, if you have a patient that you feel has a true financial hardship, or a true hardship that you feel like the patient is unable to do the urine drug screen, such as they're homebound and cannot get to you, that can be documented in your note in a court of law that would hold up that you did not do the drug screening test. So it's very important that you document, this is why we did not do it, um, in order to um, support clinical documentation in a court of law that you did follow Georgia law, and this is the reason why you define the patient as having a hardship. Um, office visits every three months for greater than or equal to 30 morphine milli equivalents. So obviously the question of telehealth comes up. So the law keeps changing. Um, they keep moving the date back to requires in person for this. But in the future, it will require that a patient establishes with that provider within 90 days of that virtual visit in which the first um controlled substance prescription is given for an opioid. Um, it was supposed to be inactive at the end of this month, but again, they pushed it again back to 2024. So just continue to watch the law on that. But it's best practice to make sure you're following up with those patients every three months. It is Georgia law. If they use less than 30 morphine million equivalents per day, that's one visit um, in a calendar year. Hopefully you do that visit in person so you can lay hands on them, check on them, get your drug screening and everything. And then obviously that PDMP is required. And again, this is a drug this law is just for long-term treatment of opioid therapy. I get a lot of questions asked about, well, what about ADHD medicine? What about sleep medicine? This is what the law defines, opioids. Your practice, of if you drug screen somebody on chronic benzodiazepines, that is up to your clinical practice and what you define as a good care for your patients. You can still put them on controlled substance agreements. You can still require them to come see you. You can still do the PDMP. It's totally up to you. But the law is in place for opioid therapies for these requirements and then also the PDMP for benzodiazepines. Let's talk about calculating the total daily dose for opioids and trying to pick the safer dosage. So before I got here, you guys had to do this all manually. Um, Epic did not do that for you. I was very excited when we won that part on the storyboard that I'll actually calculate more familiar equivalents for you so you can kind of know what law you need to follow, but also let you know what the patient is on. Um, it's important to know if you use free text it will not calculate morphine milliequivalent for you. It just cannot, Epic cannot read that. It's not a discrete fill. But if you use the speed buttons where you're picking the dose, the route, 
the frequency. It'll calculate the morphine milliequivalent for you on the storyboard. But if it's ever not populated, it's because it's been done in free text. So it's very important that if you want it to do the work for you, um, that you use the speed buttons that are there or filling in those discrete fields and not using free text. So there is a cut point. So one of the biggest changes in the 2022 guidelines from CDC about chronic pain management was the cut point. So before they kind of said, do not go over 90, anybody over 90, start de-escalating therapy. And that led to several years of patients of chronic pain getting poor treatment because everybody's different. Their requirement's going to be different. Their tolerance is different. Their metabolite's different. So we, you know, did a disservice to our patients during that time following this guideline. So now they don't have a hard and dirty, don't go above this. They just have a recommendation of take a pause when you get to 15 morphine milliequivalents per day to number one, check in with your patient that it's working. Number two, check and review that the patient doesn't have opioid use disorder. Number three, can you do any alternative therapies and not escalate the opioid therapy? And number four, have that conversation with them about bowel, bowel regimen. Are you going to the restroom? Are you, you know, are you having um, a lot more breakthrough pains? But really just really checking in on the side effects and the adverse reactions that can occur. The reason why they pick the, four, uh, the 50 morphine milliequivalents per day is what they have found is that if a patient goes over that amount, there has not been a good amount of clinical evidence to link the benefit over the risk. So there's a higher risk when we go over that. So it's very much we want to have that conversation because we don't see progressive pain control and it getting better as you go over that. So it might be where we need to bring in other specialists, refer them out um, when we get to that point to make sure we're doing the best medicine possible. We know that higher doses over 15 morphine milliequivalents per day are linked to an increased risk of opioid use disorder or opioid overdose leading to death. Um, and it has not been um, proven to reduce pain over long-term times when you're using higher amounts. One randomized clinical trial showed no difference in pain or function between a more liberal opioid dose escalation strategy and maintenance of the current dose. So it shows that even if you're increasing it because of their tolerance that they already at now, they may not get a clinical benefit from that. So it's just you know, very important that you evaluate. Some of the evidence we found from our Veterans Health Administration, they're one of the really good leading people about updating us on opioids and then the state of Washington are usually the two places that I go that have been known to do this. You know, look at patient samples all the time and they found that when you use those higher morphine milliequivalents, it's linked to a higher risk of that opioid overdose, which makes sense when we think about it. But again, we just have to do safe things, safe treatment. So when you think about, you know, calculating morphine milliequivalents, so if Epic's not doing it, you know, making sure that you have that in your toolkit on how to calculate that. So we've got some examples here. So if you have 50 milligrams of hydrocodone, so that could be 10 tablets of your hydrocodone acetaminophen 5300. That could be 30 morphine um, milligrams of oxycodone and 12 milligrams of methadone. So that just lets you know that hydrocodone to morphine is one-to-one. -one, but as we get to other therapies that are a little bit more potent, that it's less to equal that amount of 50. And then same thing with 90 morphine equivalents, some other equivalent ones. So that could be 90 milligrams of hydrocodone, 60 milligrams of oxycodone, and 20 milligrams of methadone. So there is a conversion factor on how to calculate this. So like I said, 
Um, hydrocodon is one to one, hydromorphone would be one to four, so a little bit different in the conversion factor. Now, there are some exceptions when you're doing this, using caution around methadone, fentanyl, and buprenorphine, because the calculations there are very different. The potency is very different in those. So that's one of the ones when I'm personally doing it, I'm going to pull a calculator up online, let technology assist me. But the rest of them, I'm very comfortable with doing it by hand. So when we're, you know, thinking about that and we use the morphine milliequivalent calculator, we don't want to use the calculated dose and morphine milliequivalents to determine a dosage for converting one opioid to another. The new opioid should be a lower to avoid unintentional overdose caused by incomplete cross-tolerance and individual differences in opioid pharmacokinetics. So we want to consult that medication label. Um, so when we're starting and making that conversion, it's not one-to-one. Um, you just need to do a little bit of a dose reduction, bring the patient back to check in on them. Um, again, you're going to use that extra caution when we're thinking about methadone and fentanyl. So if we think about an example, so if we have um, a 60-year-old male with a past medical history of hypertension, dyslipidemia, and chronic pain, he is prescribed oxycodone, 20 milligrams, ER, and release tablets. This, these are prescribed as one tablet by mouth every 12 hours. What is the daily morphine milliequivalent for this patient? Any thoughts? So this is 1.5 times when we look at oxycodone. I'll give you the answer. Some people don't like to shout things out. So that's going to be about 60 morphine milliequivalents when we do the math for this patient. So it's just very important when you're thinking about these things. Oxycodone is more important, um, potent, so you need to be a little bit more careful for that. So how should a prescriber use a total daily dose and um, an opioid dose in clinical practice? Obviously, we want to use caution when prescribing opioids at any dosage and prescribe the lowest effective dose possible. So that's where you're checking in with your patient and not escalating when we don't need to. Before increasing to greater than or equal to 15 morphine milliequivalents, we want to pause, take that risk assessment we talked about, um, and see if it's going to be sustainably to improve their pain if you increase it, or will it actually increase a risk of an overdose or more adverse effects. We also want to offer Narcan to all of our patients. The opioid dashboard will show you how many patients you have prescribed Narcan to, um, and you're going to be surprised the number's probably close to zero. Um, so just make sure you're having those conversations. Prescribe it for them. It's much more affordable than it's ever been. It's over the counter now. Last time I priced it, went to Target. It was $40 for two doses. So, I mean, it is out there. Um, looking a lot in our community to see if we can get it free for our patients. So when I find that, I'll be publishing that out as well. But, you know, we just want to make sure that we um, make sure to weigh the risk for the benefits and make sure the patients have Narcan at home to recover them. So the unique thing about the new guidelines was that they made a clearer definition about acute pain versus chronic pain. So we know that our acute pain is sudden and onset, time limited. Some of those things are trauma, injury, surgery. It's usually one month or less and a newer definition was subacute pain, which is one to three months. Because, you know, some patients, depending on the surgery, depending on the rehab to get them back to where they were, that pain could last a little bit longer than a traditional surgery patient. Um, chronic pain is last greater than three months. So if you have a patient who prescribed opioid therapy for more than three months, um, or they're using the one prescription that you gave them for three months, that is defined as chronic pain. So it could be medical diseases and long-term injury, um, medical treatment, inflammation, or multiple unknown causes. 
So let's dig into each piece of that 2022 guideline. So the one recommendation um, that came out was um, non-opioid therapies are at least as effective as opioids for many common types of acute pain. So remember, that's our surgery pain, our traumas, those little injuries that come through urgent care, sometimes through our ER. And clinicians should maximize the use of these non-pharmacological therapies and the non-opioid pharmacological therapies. We've got to think about things like NSAIDs, aspirin, acetaminophen, our um, anti-inflammatory gels like Voltaren, lidocaine, so trying to not use opioids because we know um, for some patients, once they have their first dose, that leads to a euphoria effects and can increase their risk of opioid use disorder. Recommendation number two is non-opioid therapies are preferred for subacute and chronic pain. Only consider opioid therapy if expected benefits are greater than the risk to the patient. So again, we don't want to start with the opioids. We want to start with our non-opioid sparing therapies first and maximize those before we consider an opioid. Um, recommendation number three was clinicians should prescribe immediate release opioids instead of extended release or long-acting opioids for patients who are opioid naive. Now, I will let you know if you were to prescribe an extended release medication for an, a pain management patient who's never been on an extended release before or is opioid naive, the majority of pharmacies in this area and across the country will not fill it. They're going to challenge that. So if they ever see a fentanyl come across and that patient has never in their life had anything on PDMP before, they're going to challenge it because their entity will not let them fill that drug um, because they don't have a prescribing practice with them. The PDMP cannot prove that that's safe because a lot of the DEA is targeting pharmacies now and their role in the opioid epidemic and not the pharmacist not doing enough not to fill the prescriptions, even if they're ordered by a provider. So you just be very careful that you know the patient's history and that you can have good support to convince that pharmacist to fill it because they can just deny it and send the patient on to the next place. Um, because again, their license and livelihoods are just as much as risk as the prescriber who wrote that. Um, speaking from a person who did a couple of years of retail pharmacy, I cannot tell you the number of times the DEA came in there and would pull my records and question me on something I did because I had a pill mill across the street from me. And it would not be from a pill mill doctor, but they were auditing to make sure we were following what they sent out and not to fill this prescription from that provider. Um, so again, making sure that using that immediate release before you ever use extended release. Recommendation number four was when opioids are initiated for opioid naive patients, clinicians should prescribe the lowest effective dose. So we want to try that, you know, one tablet every eight hours or every 12 hours before you go to that every one to four to six hours. I see a lot of that right out the gate. We go to every four hours. We didn't even try those longer intervals because we don't know how that patient's going to survive. And sometimes it's just easier to send out to four to six because that's what's auto-populated and auto-clicked for you. But sometimes to help decrease the risk of opioid use disorder and give the lowest effective dose, we have to modify that prescription within our electronic medical record. Recommendation number five was clinicians should carefully weigh benefits and risk and exercise care when changing opioid dose in patients already receiving opioid therapy. So again, it goes back to doing your opioid use screening disorder that you should be doing with these patients. It goes back to checking on adverse reactions, rating that pain score, having that realistic conversation about what is your pain, what is the pain level that you can live with, and really shooting for that because we will never get them to zero pain. Recommendation number six, when opioids are needed for acute pain, clinicians should prescribe no greater quantities than needed for the expected duration of pain severe enough to require 
opioids. So let's talk about that acute pain. So one of the ones we talked about was surgery. So a lot of times I see go out of here on some of our surgical um, specialties is 10 days of opioids. So we know that if a patient is given more than 72 hours of opioids, they have higher risk of developing opioid use disorder. Um, there are some things put in place with our pharmacy benefits managers, which are the processors on the back end at a pharmacy. It's where they send the claim to. They send back the price. They're going to require a prior authorization for any opioid greater than seven days in an opioid naive patient. It will also require a prior authorization at the beginning of the year for anything greater than seven days for any chronic pain patient. So it's just very important to realize if you want to prevent the delay in care for a patient that you try to use the lowest effective dose, stay at that three days, reassess. If you need to give them more than three days, try to stay below seven so it doesn't trigger a prior authorization and the patient can get the medication. Now, most patients will pay out of pocket for this, but then in the PDMP, that will flag them as using cash, which is considered a, a suspicious behavior. So it's just really important that you consider that when you're looking at the quantity that it could delay patient care based off the history for that patient. Recommendation number seven, clinicians should evaluate benefits and risks with patients within one to four weeks of starting opioid therapy for subacute and chronic pain of or of any doses education. So that's important. What I know is that the law says every three months for greater than or equal to 30 morphine and milli equivalents per day and once a year for less than 30 morphine milli equivalents per day. But we may just see these patients more to make sure they're not having any side effects, that the medication is working for them. If it's not working for them, maybe we stop it, try something different because they, they may not be responding to that therapy. So it's just very important that we're, we're checking in with these patients. Maybe not physically seeing them in person, maybe a telehealth, maybe doing a phone call. Maybe if you don't know this, if you're in a, a note with a patient and you're about to sign your charges, you can actually go in there and delay a patient communication to go out in one to four weeks. You go ahead and sign your, type your MyChart message, delay it, and it'll go out on the day that you want it to go out on. You don't have to remember to do it. You just did it at the time you interacted with the patient. So that's something to think about. Recommendation number eight, when starting and changing therapy, clinicians should evaluate risk for opioid-related harms and discuss risk with the patient. So again, having that conversation with the patient at every single refill is what best practice is. Is it working? How is it working? Are you having a bowel movement? Um, are you having any euphoric effects from the medication? Are you still able to do your daily livings? Has anybody noticed that you're more drowsy than issue? Have you had any issues operating a um, your vehicle or anything like that post taking a dose of the medication. So again, evaluating the risk. What they have found is we don't evaluate enough for opioid use disorder. And by the time it's discovered, the patient is so far into their use disorder that it requires a lot of treatment. It's going to require a lot of treatment already, but if you can catch them early in their symptomology, they're more likely to engage in um, wanting to de-escalate therapy and receive treatment to help them with their opioid use disorder. When initially prescribing opioids, clinicians should review the patient's history of controlled substance prescriptions using the state PDMPs um, data to determine whether the patient is receiving opioid dosages or combinations that put the patient at high risk for overdose. So we all like to assume the patient, you know, all our patients are do well. Um, they're, they're kind people. They're, they're truthful. But we've got the PDMP to kind of help with that. Cannot tell you how many times you've, I've been in a PDMP and there's a lot going on. They're doctor shopping. They're using multiple medications that they never admitted to us. Um, we've also seen this with some of our hospice patients that they're getting it from so many different people, but they're supposed to be with one hospice house. So it's important that even if a patient is receiving cancer and 
um, cancer treatment or in hospice that they understand that they really need to keep it with one provider so that they can um, get them what they need pretty quickly and that it doesn't delay their therapy at the uh, pharmacy because, again, the pharmacy can see um, behavior that's concerning and they can decide not to fill the medication, even if the patient's in hospice, because how do they know the patient's actually taking it? It could be being abused by a family member. So it's just really important that we're using that tool and discussing that with the patient. Number 10 was the recommendation when prescribing opioids, clinicians should utilize toxicology testing to assess prescribed medications as well as other prescribed and non-prescribed controlled substances. So as part of my job, I do a lot of opioid audits. I look in charts. I look at patients. I try to figure out if we're following the Georgia law. I'm a firm believer that um, opioids are, have a necessary place in th therapy. Patients, there are patients that need to use them. We want to use them in the correct way. But we also want to make sure we're using them safely. And one of the ways is to look at their um, drug screenings to make sure they're, one, actually taking them, um, um, two, that they're not using a, their polysubstance abuser. And what I found the majority of my audits that I audit providers on, they do not pass the rules and regulation part of the Georgia law around um, urine drug screen. So just be aware that that is something that's there and we need to make sure that we're doing it. Recommendation 11 was proceed with caution when prescribing opioid pain medication and concurrently with benzodiazepines because we know that increases the risk of opioid overdose as well as respiratory depression. And then number 12, clinicians should offer and arrange treatment with evidence-based medications to treat patients with opioid use disorder. So making sure you know what's in your community to treat them, making sure, you know, through this series of stuff, we've had several speakers who actually do MAT therapy or medication-assisted therapy um, who are our experts in it and they'll be willing to help you. We no longer have to have the ex-DEA, so anybody that has a DEA now is able to prescribe those therapies as long as they feel comfortable and are able to manage that patient. So when we think about um, um, when should opioids be considered, we want to remember that opioids are not first-line or routine therapies for chronic pain. We want to establish and measure goals of pain and function. That's where your physical exam comes in, your patient interview, um, having them set their goals to have their quality of life, and then obviously discuss that risk versus benefit um, and availability of non-opioid therapies to the patient. I think a lot of patients know that opioids work because everybody has it in their cabinet. They've had it from a dental procedure and then they hurt their back, so they take that, so they're coming to get a refill. I see that a lot too, um, where there's just a lot of it in our community and people are misusing it that way. So non-pharmacological treatment options. We've got comfort therapy. That's a lot of our exercise, hot and cold application, um, 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 mediation, sorry, meditation, massage, acupuncture, and spinal manipulation. So involving other um, complementary medicine providers, so things as your chiropractors, your masseuses, um, people in the community, exercise therapists that can actually help a patient through that without using medications. Another one is, you know, um, nerve stimulation. We've got cognitive behavioral counseling because sometimes it is not a physical pain, it's a psychological pain, and obviously physical or occupational therapy. In our organization, I know we're very good at referring people for physical therapy. Um, it's just getting the patient to engage in that actual recommendation. So we look at non-pharmacological treatments. There's a lot of um, level one evidence for use. So tricyclic antidepressants, things like amitriptyline, normal tripling, noratriptyline, are good with neuropathic pain, centralized pain, such as fibromyalgia. We look at SNRIs, things like duloxetine, which does a labeling for chronic back pain. It's actually FDA approved for chronic back pain, but it's good for neuropathic pain, fibromyalgia as well, as well as chronic back pain. Second generation anticonvulsants that are your pregabalin and gabapentin. That's going to be neuropathic pain, again, fibromyalgia. Acetaminophen is the number one recommended medication for osteoarthritis as well as musculoskeletal pain. And then our NSAIDs due to inflammation, 
um, pain with inflammation. It's very important we think about NSAIDs. We look at our patient's kidney function. We say we want us to call an acute kidney. Uh, acute kidney injury, use these medications or if a patient's hypertensive. So we want to make sure that they understand that um, that might not be the best dose, uh, best medication for every patient. But if we do need to use it, they use it for a short period of time. Other um, ones to think about is um, our glucocorticoids, uh, Lord, I can never say that, steroids. So dexamethasone, pregnisone, methylpregnant. Pregnisolone. Um, so these are common agents I see a lot for injection therapies, especially in our ERs and our urgent cares. Um, but what I also don't see is that if a patient is given these um, steroids, these high potent steroids, that persons with diabetes are actually counseled about how it affects their blood sugar. So we're seeing a lot of patients who receive these therapies and then end up back at um, the ER or progress to the ER because their blood sugar is four, 500, 600 from these injections, but their medication for their diabetes was not managed. So it's definitely something to think about. Good medications, definitely great for opioids um, sparing, but we just need to be aware of the downstream effect for other clinical disease states. Um, other alternatives are going to be your tizanidine and clonidine. Um, they are alpha-2 agonists, so they work very well for muscle skeletal pain um, and nerve pain. And then also we have our, um, our muscle relaxants. It's very important we think about that in our beers list, so our elderly patients, that we are sticking more on the baclofen and tizanidine. Those are more preferred in our elderly patients comparative to our cyclobenzaprine. Um, then we've got our topical agents. The great thing is all of these are over the counter. So if a patient doesn't have insurance, these are great things to start with. You've got lidocaine that's over the counter. The 4% patch is over the counter along with the gel. Um, you've also got your diclofenac as well as your capsaicin. So when should you refer? So obviously we need to refer for um, psychology services, psychiatry, when you have a psychological pain if, um, suspected. If you notice that they've had some trauma, some surgery, they need some conditioning done, that would be physical therapy or occupational therapy. Pain specialist, that is something to refer if you don't know, can't figure out what the pain is, you don't know how to cure it, you've tried what you want to, you can try, and then you can refer them to pain specialists. So we've got interventional pain management within NGPG, um, and then some of the community doctors are actually medicine um, pain managers. They don't do any type of interventions. You've got your addiction specialist, so someone who you believe has an issue and you've had a positive drug screening um, for unprescribed meds or medications of abuse or street drugs, you can refer them to a specialist. And then also using those alternative therapies and knowing who in your community is available for acupuncture or spinal manipulation. How should a visit look? So when we think about our visit, we want to evaluate the patient. I think we are in these 15-minute appointments and we um, are moving really, really quickly because we are definitely still in a society that's um, RVU-driven. Uh, how many can we get through the door in order to meet our RVU goal for the day and not focusing so much on the quality of that care? And sometimes that quality comes from the patient interview. And our medical assistants cannot always gather all the information. They are not trained to do that. They are trained to be the right-hand man and really assist the provider, not so much on what a medication is, how to order a medication, anything like that. They're more to give your injections and assist you in what you need, not so much interview the patient. Um, so we should look at that medical record to look for any um, behaviors that could be concerning. What is the indication that they're taking it for? Have they had it in the past? Um, do we have that appropriate evaluated physical um, evaluation? Um, do we know the patient's type of pain in the nature, the the location, what makes it worse, what causes it? Does it feel like pin needles? Does it feel like electricity? Um, does anything make it worse, make it better? Um, if you do an activity 
Um, you mow the grass, is it worse the next day? Picking up your children, things like that. Um, and then trying to figure out if it's physical or psychological. Um, the other thing is assessment of the patient's personal and family history. Family history is very important. We think about the risk for any type of substance use disorder and seeing do they have a family history of it because it does increase the risk of um, any type of substance abuse disorder when we see it in their family history. So we want to use that as an evaluation. And this should be done through a validated opioid risk tool. Um, and the one that we're having built into Epic is called the opioid risk tool. And pain management is currently piloting that for us. Our evaluation is looking for high risk for addiction or treatment failures. Um, should have consultation with pain management and addiction specialists to see if there's anything else we can do for the patient. Using that PDMP, you should always check the PDMP before you have the conversation with the patient about prescribing. That way, you're able to discuss that behavior with them beforehand instead of sending it after you've talked to the patient and haven't had that conversation because then they may not answer the phone and you may not be able to get your clarifying questions. And then before initiating that long-term opioid therapy, urine drug screen should be performed to assess for controlled prescriptions or illicit drugs in their urine. I don't see this practice a lot, but this is a recommendation of the guideline. Um, I don't know how well socialized it is, but it is good practice before you even start a medication for a patient with chronic therapy that you go ahead and make sure they're not using anybody else's medications or using other um, street drugs to treat their pain because we would want to know that because that can increase their risk of overdose or adverse outcome if they um, have other medications in their system or other things they might be um, abusing at home. So this is an example of the opioid risk tool, the one that we're um, utilizing at Epic. So it's evaluating um, family history of um, substance abuse, looking at alcohol, illegal drugs, prescription drugs, and then personal history as well of alcohol, illicit drugs, or prescription drugs, um, looking at their age if they're between um, 16 and 45, because that's where the highest risk is, history of pre-adolescent sexual abuse, um, history of ADD, OCD, bipolar, schizophrenia, depression. And then based off the selection that you make, um, a zero to three is a low score, four to seven is a moderate score, and higher score is greater than or equal to eight. And what they say is as you get up into that medium score, that's might when you need to have, start having um, conversations about them, about their risk of opioid abuse, um, their risk of um, developing... Uh, uh, street drug abuse so that it could lead to something else so that they're aware of what the symptoms are and recognize to use these medications sparingly and if they have any issues or concerns to report that to you. One of the things that can help reinforce these conversations with your patient is that controlled substance agreement or that informed consent. We have been working actively within EPIC to update our controlled substance agreement. So Longstreet and NGPG have adopted a new controlled substance agreement. Um, so it is a recommendation to re-sign your patients to the new agreement. There's a lot more in there about the risk of it to the patient, the expectation from the provider and the patient um, relationship, and a lot to protect the provider's license. So it's just very important if you're if it's older than six months, it's probably not the most up-to-date one. So that might be a good conversation with your patient just to go back over those agreements. They don't ever expire, so it's not like an annual thing you have to do. But we just want to make sure that as new ones come out, we're getting them updated. So the um, informed consent is really what we call our controlled substance agreement. So it's evaluating what we expect with the patient, which is safe opioid use that, you know, if they need a refill, they need to let us know um, when plenty of time. We, this is not an on-call thing. You have to do it during regular business hours. It also goes over the risk, talks about um, operating heavy materiary, the risk of developing dependence, the risk of um, drowsiness, sedation, respiratory depression. So all those things you would verbally tell a patient is also written down. 
Um, we should establish that agreement with them early in the process. So if you're going to start chronic therapy, go ahead and execute the agreement. should not be further into the process. But when I did a lot of the audits, I noticed we were missing a lot of controlled substance agreement. Um, we want to make sure we talk to them about their treatment plan that we talk about, pharmacological, non-pharmacological. You set those realistic goals. Um, we talk about how we're going to evaluate their treatment and how much we want to see them, counseling them on the risk, and then getting that written consent with our controlled substance agreement. Opioid therapy should be um, presented to the patient as a therapeutic trial or a test period. So we should always bring that patient back within that first prescription, um, usually no more than 90 days to start out with, and really have those evaluation points that you want to go over with the patient. So tell them what you're going to be looking for when they come back. That way they're able to look for that um, expectations while they're taking the therapy. Like what should they expect in the next 90 days? And when you come back, what will you be discussing? When initiating opioid therapy, the lowest effective dose should be um, chosen. So we just want to continue to drive that home. And then we want to slowly titrate those patients up. Um, the risk-first benefit, like we said, when you get over greater than our 50 morphine milliequivalents per day, that does increase the risk. So immediate use opioids, what are our options? This is not everything that's out there. This is just the most common ones that I see used within our organization. So you've got things like um, acetaminophen with codeine, hydrocodone and acetaminophen, oxycodone and acetaminophen, just to name a few. Our extended release, we're going to be more things like our fentanyl. We've got our um, hydrocodone ER, or hydromorphine ER, methadone, oxycodone, extended release. So these are the ones that we want to use second line when we're starting a patient off with chronic pain. We want to start with immediate release and then press um, progress to the extended release. If we see it, that initial treatment period, they're taking a lot of it. That's when you might want to consider um, taking those um, extended release tablet. Um, Dr. Dutta and I did a presentation previously, I think in September, talking about the pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics of opioid therapies. And then she taught a lot about putting that into practice. So she had a great recommendation about immediate release to ER um, changeover. So I would recommend watching that one if you want a little bit, little bit more about that. Um, we know that the use of opioids can be safe and effective for patients. Um, we just want to make sure that we carefully select who those patients are how we're going to titrate, how we're going to monitor. We want to make sure we're keeping an eye on them. Scheduled long-acting opioids, such as morphine extended release, are preferred for continuous treatment. So morphine, methadone, or buprenorphine are those preferred therapies. Um, Oxycontin is not because of the higher risk of misuse and diversion, even though they have done a lot to make those um, medications not be able to be injected. I mean, they are still abused. Avoid long-term daily treatment with short-acting opioids. So that's when we really want to think about um, moving patients over to extended release if they meet those qualifications. And then for as-needed um, medications, we want to make sure we're only giving them a small monthly supply because if you give patient, if you say they can take it every four to six hours, you give them the full amount that they could do it literally every four to six hours, you're giving the patient to do it. So the ability to do that because they're all there. So if you talk to a patient and you give them the extended release and you're also going to give them breakthrough pain, really have a conversation with them when they come back. How many did you use? And then write that and give them 10% more just in case they have a bad day, but we're not giving them buckets of full of medications to walk out the door. That's also really important now when this medication um, right now are getting harder to find because the amount that's being prescribed, the amount that the DEA allows to be made in a year cannot keep up with the prescribing rates. So um, patients are having a hard time finding these and they're having to go to multiple pharmacies. Um, clinicians should avoid prescribing opioid pain medications and benzodiazepines together whenever possible. 
And then we want to make sure that when we are talking about opioids, when I do a lot of our um, audits on medications for opioid use, number one things I see is that there's no bowel regimen. Um, and a lot of the patients are reporting chronic constipation, um, and we haven't set them up to prevent it when they first start on the therapy. I also see a lot of patients who go to the emergency room because of opioid-induced constipation, which we could have avoided if on the ambulatory side we actually sent them out with the bowel regimen. So we know opioids can decrease um, gastric emery as well as the bowel movement, and so that can lead to um, chronic constipation. Tolerance does not develop for constipation. Like other opioid adverse effects, like it's going to continue to occur. So we want to make sure that we give that patient that bowel regimen. It could be things like polyethylene glycol, Miralax, can be lactulose, and can be docusate. So it's whatever you think the patient would need and respond to. If it's not working for them at their follow-up, go ahead and make a change. The other thing is we want to be aware that we um, do naloxone prescribing to our patients. We know that if we give them the tools, um, it's great to teach the patient, but it's really important to teach the family members, their spouse, their children, so that they can recognize the signs and symptoms because we know in the incidence of an overdose, it's not going to be the patient giving it to themselves. So it's really important that you bring in the family and have that conversation with them. So it's an opioid antagonist that can reverse the severe respiratory depression, um, and can be administered by the lay person. So it's very important that we do the risk versus benefit. We um, treat the patient to it. All patients greater than or equal 50 morphine milliequivalents is the cut point in which the CDC recommends that it be prescribed for that patient. And if you um, are not able to do the counseling yourself, make sure that they get the counseling from their pharmacist. So we think about um, special populations, one being sleep disorder or breathing. So they have an increased risk of life-threatening respiratory and CNS depression or overdose when given medications such as opioids. So that can, um, risk factors for sleep disoriented breathing include congestive heart failure and obesity. Clinicians should avoid prescribing opioids to patients with moderate or severe sleep disorder breathing um, whenever possible to minimize the risk of opioid overdose. Pregnant women, clinicians, and patients should carefully weigh that risk versus benefit for the patient when initiating opioid therapy during pregnancy. Opioid use in pregnancy might be associated with increased risk for both the mother and the fetus. Um, and in some cases, opioid use during pregnancy leads to neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. Clinicians caring for pregnant women should really do the risk versus benefit with the patients. And when they're receiving um, opioids for pain or receiving buprenorphine or methadone for opioid use disorder, should arrange for delivery at a facility, which can be prepared to monitor, evaluate, and treat for neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. So for hepatic and renal insufficiency, um, clinicians should use um, additional caution and increased monitoring to minimize the risk of opioids prescribed for patients with renal or hepatic insufficiency. Given their decreased ability to process and excrete drugs, um, susceptibility to accumulation of the opioids and a reduced therapeutic window between safe dosages and doses associated with respiratory depression and overdose. So again, we want to make sure that we're using the yose effective dose if they're renally or hepatically paired, you're extending the dosing interview interval and trying not to do the four hours, but try to think about six, eight, or 12. Um, patients greater than equal to age 65, we know that these patients are at increased risk due to the slowing down of their body's ability to process opioid medications. So they have um, reduce renal function and reduce renal, um, reduce clearance overall for these patients. And so there are an increased risk of that accumulation 
and they have a smaller therapeutic window for these drugs. So again, we want to extend those intervals. We want to use the lowest effective dose possible. We want to do a cognitive screening on them. We want to look at their risk for falls because the least thing we want to do is cause a falling into a broken hip, which we know will lead to a long rehab stay. So making sure that we're assessing more things with the patients greater than or equal to 65 years old age and also helping them understand what to do with their unused medications because the more we can get out of the community, the better. So for our follow-up, we just want to assess with the patient and have those shared conversations with them and see if it's improving their function. If not, make a change. Um, frequency is defined by the provider, but the recommendation is one to four weeks after dosage change or initial start of a medication, checking that PDMP making sure that you're assessing for opioid use disorder in the patients with chronic pain therapy and refer to a pain management specialist when you feel that the patient needs that. There is a whole DSM-5 criteria about opioid use criteria, or sorry, opioid use disorder. So it is defined in the DSM-5 with multiple questions that you can ask the patient to evaluate them during your um, time at their appointment with you. Now, when it comes to opioid tapering, this is a lot of questions that I get asked. It's very patient-specific. You want to go nice, um, low, and slow. You don't want to make any aggressive changes because um, the patient can have some adverse effects. So times when to do it. The patient requests it. You have a shared decision-making conversation. They want to do that. The pain improves with them decreasing their dose, so it could be that it was not working for them. There's no clini clinically meaningful improvement in their pain or function at their dose, um, they've been treated for a prolonged period of time, and you want to try um, a um, drug-free period. They um, have evidence that they're experiencing side effects, um, and the patient has had overdose in the past. So when I think about the tapering, there's two ways that you can do it. If a patient has been on the therapy greater than one year, we want to do a dose reduction of 10% per month. If it's been less than a year, you can do a dose reduction of 10% per week. So we each time you would want to check in with them monthly before you trigger the next dose reduction because they may not be ready mentally or physically to have that next step down. So it's very good to engage that patient. The other thing I get asked a lot is about termination of controlled substance agreement. Our controlled substance agreement does define what that is, but it is very provider specific whether they actually act on that. I've talked to pain management recently in psychiatry. It's very provider-specific. Some providers will give a second time. They'll send it out for confirmation. They'll do a blood test. So it's just very provider-specific. But there is language in our controlled substance agreement that does define if a patient fails a urine drug screening, the provider does have the ability to um, release them from their service of care and no longer prescribe the medication. So it's just very important that um, you guys know that that's there. You'll have to define that with what you're comfortable with when discharging a patient and making sure you go through the correct dismissal policy with our organization for that patient, as well as making sure to refer that patient to seek care other, other places or refer them to addiction medicine if it's because you think they have a, an addiction. There's been a lot and multiple um, discussions about opioid use disorder treatment. I know Travis is going to be doing one coming up. Travis Dobbs is one of our nurse practitioners at Tacoa. He has been running substance abuse treatment centers for years, so I'm going to leave this for him to talk about, but that'll be on November 14th that he'll be doing his. So our key points are to be aware of the number of morphine milligrams per day a patient is taking. Provide um, naloxone to all of our patients. Um, use non-pharmacological and non-opioid therapies first. Refer a patient as needed for those other therapies, whether it's massage, pain management, 
um, counseling, whatever you feel fit will augment that patient's therapy, but also physical therapy and occupational therapy. Assess for opioid use disorder and follow the Georgia law for prescribing opioids. That's the most important thing here today. Yes, these medications have place in therapy, but we also have a law to follow as well. So if you're going to be practicing prescribing um, medications, opioids for chronic pain management, which is defined as greater than 90 days of therapy, please make sure that you are following what's set out by our Georgia law um, to take care of that patient. Um, there are lots of resources located on SharePoint. Um, there's an evidence-based guideline about chronic pain management for providers to look at. We're about to publish an evidence-based guideline about medication-assisted therapy and diving more into what some of these people are talking about, but it's like a 10-page summary of what you can do for those patients. And we're also working to put a lot in Epic so that if you decide to do it, you can just point and click for what you want to do by developing a smart set. Um, that's the end of my presentation today. Does anybody have any questions? Thank you, Dr. Schnibben. Um, if you're viewing online and have a question, please enter it into the chat. And do we have any questions or comments in the room? Oh, here we go. Um, it was a really good presentation, uh, Dr. Schnibben. I just wanted to ask about, uh, are there any updates about prescribing Suboxone? in the outpatient setting. I know when I was doing my pain management rotation, there was one about the DEA. Um, so if you can go over that. Absolutely. So that's where this series comes from. So um, in the beginning of the year, about April, they removed the need for the XDEA. So previously, the year before, we had the XDEA. And then they made it so if you wanted to prescribe to 30 patients, you just had to sign up for a waiver. You did not actually have to have an XDEA. Well, this year they completely removed the need for the XDEA. And in June, they announced what the requirements would be for all, all persons with a DEA in order to have the ability to prescribe that. And that's where these eight hours of CE that is now required. So at the annual renewal or whenever you renew your DEA, I don't have one, so I don't know exactly when you guys renew them. But when you renew your DEA, that's why you have to have the eight hours of education about opioid therapy, opioid um, medication-assisted therapy, and how to treat these patients. That is their new response to it. To open it up to anybody that's interested in treating our patients and helping our population with this, you now have the ability and all barriers removed. You just have to make sure that you um, keep up with the literature around it. And when you renew your DEA, you have to have the eight hours. And that's why we're putting on this series. All right. Thank you, Dr. Schnibben. Thank you, guys.